0: Welcome to the Radical Truth Podcast. I am your host, Glenn Meldrum, and this podcast is brought to you by In His Presence Ministries. Visit us on the web at www.ihpministry.com. We studied in our last lesson the first bout of persecution the church experienced, at least according to what's recorded in the book of Acts. However, There's a real possibility that many individuals suffered rejection from family and friends at that time, and some of it could have been rather severe. We ended with the Sanhedrin council threatening Peter and John to not speak in the name of Jesus again. The healing of the man who was born a cripple caused such a stir in Jerusalem that the council felt that their hands were tied. So they couldn't physically abuse them without there being a negative response from the people. But after being warned and they were again brought before the Sanhedrin, then they would claim that they had grounds for beating these followers of Jesus. At least that's how they would justify their actions. What nice religious people that find joy in having people beaten and imprisoned when they disagree with them. Something was very perverted in their way of thinking to make physical abuse the normal punishment that they meted out for any form of dissension from the status quo that they fiercely protected. In their idolatrous love of power, they reveled in the fear that they produced in people that caused them to tremble before them. The people gave them differential treatment out of fear of retaliation for any perceived infraction, not out of love or respect. What we see next is the response of the believers to their first experience with persecution. And we see this in verses 23-31 through of the fourth chapter of Acts. We read in verse 23, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. Peter and John were released with nothing worse than a night in jail and a good tongue lashing from those hypocritical, self-righteous religious rulers. They came out on top of the situation because the two apostles preached to the big kahanas of Judaism by boldly proclaiming that salvation is through Christ alone, whom they crucified, but He rose from the dead. When they were told by the Sanhedrin to stop preaching in Jesus' name, they politely yet boldly said, No, because it's always right to obey God above the commands of any person or people, including the Sanhedrin council. I really like the idea in this verse where Peter and John went back to their own people. There had been a major shift in their worldview by becoming followers of Jesus. At one time, the life and existence of Israel was central to their identity. Now Jesus and the body of Christ had become central. It doesn't mean that they stopped loving the nation and its people, but they now had a better love, a higher love, that would help them to love others better and correctly. When they left the Sanhedrin, they weren't going back to their fellow Jews, but to their people, who were followers of Jesus, who happened to be descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was a revolution in their worldview that now centered upon Jesus and no longer focused upon Israel and the Jewish faith. This reveals an important aspect of the biblical faith that should define believers of any time, culture, or people group. As followers of Jesus, our allegiance changes from that of our nationality, religion, political affiliation, social status, education, or occupation, to that of Christ and His kingdom and family. This doesn't mean we aren't to have a right allegiance to our family, nation, or occupation, but that our all-consuming, all-defining allegiance must be given to Jesus who then defines our faith and practice. This isn't an option, but a fact that Jesus taught, as we see in verses like Luke chapter 14, verse 26, where he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This means we must love him more than any person in our life, including spouse, children, or parents. He went on to say in verse 27, And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple Jesus is stating that our love for him must not only be greater than any person in our life but it must be greater than the natural self-love that we all have there's a lie that's come straight out of hell and has slithered its way into the Christian culture that teaches people that they need to love themselves better this is 100% contrary to Jesus who said we must crucify self so who's right Is it Jesus who is the omniscient God or some pop preacher or author who's mingling secular psychology with a few Bible verses and have, as a result, created a false religion? Now let's take this one step further. Jesus went on to say in that same chapter, down in verse 33, "...in the same way any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple." This verse teaches that the biblical faith is all-consuming and that our ultimate love and allegiance must be given to Christ alone. This is what the primitive church lived out because that's what Jesus taught and commanded them to put into practice. After Peter and John told their people the account of their persecution, we read in verse 24, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. We are going to dig into the rest of their prayer in a few moments, but let's first look at how these saints responded to the persecution of Peter and John. They didn't cower in a corner like many of the disciples did when Jesus was arrested, tried, and crucified. They had seen the resurrected Christ and he had breathed on them the spirit of salvation and they had been baptized in the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So their days of hiding and cowering were over. And they didn't respond with anger or cries of divine vengeance but wanted the Lord to respond in some particular ways that we will soon study. The first thing we see is their unity. They all raised their voices together in prayer to God, and they were unified in what they were praying for, and that's one reason why there was power in their prayer. Their prayer began with acknowledging Christ's lordship and rule by stating, as the King James rendered it, Lord, Thou art God. The 1984 NIV translated as Sovereign Lord. The Greek word is where we get the English word despot, which is a king, a ruler, with absolute power. The word also refers to a lord, master, or even a husband. They were declaring that God is the Lord of all creation, the Almighty God, and is lord and master of everything. He alone has absolute power, which is something no mere king or dictator has ever possessed. They were acknowledging the fact about God that they didn't understand, and we don't either. But by faith, they believed the truth of the matter, even though they couldn't comprehend how God does what He does. This kind of faith is central to biblical Christianity. The early church believed in the free will of mankind and God's sovereignty, and they didn't have to figure it out like so many strive to do today who utterly fail at their attempt. They knew God was in control even when it felt like everything was out of control. Only an all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere-present God can accomplish His will in a fallen world without robbing people of their free will. To have faith that God is in control is good news. Those early saints fully believed that fact about God, and we should follow their example in exercising our faith by proclaiming God's faithfulness and infinite power. They continued in their prayer, stating in verses 25 and 26, You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Here we see an expression of the good education Jesus gave those early disciples and how the Holy Spirit brought these truths to their remembrance. We also see here their strong belief in the divine inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. They knew that the Holy Spirit inspired King David to prophesy what they were quoting which came from Psalms 2 and is a prophetic messianic psalm. The disciples only quoted verse 1 because it relates to the persecution that was starting to come against them. As they have been preparing this lesson for the podcast, war is going on between Israel and Hamas. Hamas is a terrorist organization who viciously attacked Israel without warning. Israel is calling this their Pearl Harbor and their 9-11. One of the leaders of Hamas said that Israel was not the only target they were aiming to destroy. The second target is Christians. This high-ranking terrorist said there will be no peace in the world until they conquer it and force everyone to worship Allah. Islam wasn't around during the era of the early church, but the same devilish spirit that inspires nations and terrorist groups to plot to destroy the true church was working back then as well. And as the prophecy proclaims, They plot in vain. Those who fight against God's people fight against God. Though the kings of the earth strive to stamp out the true faith, they will find it a futile effort because God will be with his people. They may suffer and die for the true faith, but those sent from hell to persecute them will never win. Tertullian, an early church father said, the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. The more hell tries to silence the church, the stronger her voice becomes. The more they try to destroy the church, the faster she grows. Since true followers of Jesus are forbidden to think and act like the world because they are to act like Jesus, in the face of persecution we are to refuse to be filled with anger, rage, and thoughts of revenge. We are commanded to love our enemies and do good to those who would abuse us and speak evil against us. One reason for this is so we can compassionately speak the truth about Jesus to them, and in the face of severe persecution, to live out the realities of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. This is also about our living free from bitterness, hate, or desires of revenge, all of which will separate us from Jesus and bring spiritual ruin to us. It was people in high places that had Jesus crucified. It was only for a few hours that they thought that they had won by silencing Jesus, and then the resurrection changed everything. Jesus rose as absolute victor, and when the saints are faithful through the raging of men, nations, and devils, they will know personally the power of Christ's resurrection. In verse 27, the prayer of the saints clarified what they said in the prior verse. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. This is the immediate expression of the kings and nations raging against Christ. One reason why they hated Jesus and conspired against Him is because, as God incarnate, He had the limitless anointing of the Holy Spirit on Him. Why would they hate and rage against Jesus? Why did they hate all the miracles He performed and the incredible preaching that He did? Because the anointing that flowed from Him convicted them of their sin and the evil they practiced. They wanted to silence the source that produced their guilt and shame, because they wanted to continue in their sin and pursuit of evil. This is the same reason why the ungodly persecute the true church today. When the anointing rests on God's people, it convicts those who don't know Him of their sin and wickedness. When people want to continue in the practice of sin without suffering the effects of guilt and shame, they have to somehow silence the source that's producing those feelings. Though they murder Christ's followers, they can't kill the Holy Spirit, who is the real source of their conviction. All that happens is that their guilt and shame increases with each act of persecution until they come to the point where they have hardened their hearts so much that they no longer feel any guilt for the evil that they committed. And this is a very dangerous place for people to be in. Then they develop a religious or philosophical system that justifies the evil they are acting out, but this will never remove from them their guilt before God. Only the blood of Christ can do that. And if they refuse to come to him in repentance and turning from sin, then they reject their only hope of salvation. Turning to verse 28, we find a challenging thought. The verse reads, And they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. The way this verse is commonly translated promotes a Calvinist view of predestination. This is the belief that some people are predetermined by God to go to heaven while others are to go to hell and nobody has a say over the matter. The theological implications of this are terrible and it makes God to look like a cruel and unjust being by creating people to practice sin and then damning them to hell for what he created them to do. The solution to solving the problem of this verse is actually very simple and Adam Clark effectively presented the answer. He showed how there should be a parenthetical statement within verses 27 and 28 that thoroughly changes the meaning. He translated those two verses this way: For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus whom thou anointed parentheses begins for to do whatever thy hand and thy counsel determined beforehand to be done and the parentheses both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and people of Israel were gathered together The first thing we need to remember is that in ancient Hebrew and Greek, there's no sentence punctuation, capital or small case letters, and no paragraph structure like we have today. And there wasn't any breakdown of chapters and verses like we now have in our modern translations. This means that translators must try to determine where sentences and paragraphs begin and end, and this can very easily alter the meaning of a text. The same is true with punctuation of the verses that we are looking at. Ancient Greek doesn't have parentheses, and when they are used in new translations, their purpose is to help modern readers understand what was written. When the parentheses are left out, it makes the predestined will of God to be directed at those who conspired against Jesus to have him crucified. This would mean that God created all those people involved in Christ's crucifixion for one purpose, to make them to commit the evils of crucifying Christ and then damning them to hell for doing so. The way Adam Clark translated those two verses predestines Jesus, not Herod, Pontius Pilate, and the rest of Israel. This thought is clearly taught in Scripture, and one such example is found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18-21. through For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you through your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Adam Clark made this point in his translation of these two verses. It's evident that what God's hand and counsel determined before to be done was not that which Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel had done and were doing, For then, their rage and vain counsel would be such as God himself had determined should take place, which is both impious and absurd. But these gathered together to hinder what God had before determined that his Christ should perform, and thus the passage is undoubtedly to be understood. Moving on to verse 29, we see why these disciples prayed in such a manner when they said, Now, Lord? Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. I love this prayer and its continuation in the next verse. These spirit-filled saints weren't cowering in a dark corner, hiding from the powers that be because they were afraid of their safety and life. And they weren't filled with anger, hate, and revenge for those who had Christ crucified and who were now beginning to persecute them. They were boldly asking the Lord to give them divine power to speak His Word, and they were referring to Jesus to what He had taught in the Old and New Testament that pointed to the promised Messiah. This prayer was practical because they knew from experience that they would naturally run away if things got dangerous, just like they did when Jesus was arrested. Yet all those present at the prayer meeting had within their fallen nature the potential to deny Christ if their freedom and life were at stake. This compelled them to pray for the power and grace to boldly preach the word of Christ. We have evidence that such grace is given to people when we studied how on the day of Pentecost, the 120 disciples were baptized in the Holy Spirit and were proclaiming the glory of God. Then we have the two fiery sermons Peter preached and the persecution Peter and John had just experienced. God can take cowards who love themselves above God and others and turn them into Christ-loving saints that are bold and fiery for the glory and fame of the Savior. This offers us hope that we too can be courageous for Christ if we will love Him supremely and obey Him explicitly. Now add to this verse 30 where they prayed, Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. They were asking the Lord for Holy Ghost power to perform signs and wonders so that Jesus glorified. We should be praying this exact thing ourselves. Miracles don't save people. They never have. Only Jesus saves. But miracles glorify God and they point people to Jesus who is the Savior. Why are whole portions of the church bent on believing the thoroughly unbiblical doctrine that miracles cease with the death of the apostles? Well, I'm not really sure why they do this, because there isn't a single verse to base that claim upon. And why are they so hostile to the idea of miracles when they glorify God? I don't have an answer to that question either. Is there abuse of miracles and signs and wonders? Sadly, there is. Are there counterfeit miracles? Yes, again. But there are counterfeit Christ, and we don't reject Jesus as a result. So why should we reject the miraculous? Because some people abuse or counterfeit them. What should our response be to Jesus and signs and wonders? That Jesus is the only Savior, so we serve Him wholeheartedly. And that miracles glorify Him, so we want to do this the very best we can, that He would be glorified through us. When we see abuse, we aren't to reject what's true. Instead, we are to cry out for the grace to not abuse the Lord's gift and precious promises. There are two sides of the abuse of divine healing and signs and wonders. The first is when people counterfeit them or in some way abuse the gift. And the second is to deny the existence of the supernatural and claim miracles cease with the death of the original apostles. We should be seeking God to do this correctly, not to deny the truth of God's Word. And notice that not everyone in this prayer meeting were apostles. We don't know who else was there but I think it's reasonable to state that many lay people were praying that the Lord would use them in such ways, and He did. There's absolutely nothing in this prayer that declares the apostles were the only ones to receive this power and had the right to operate in it. The prayer was generic in the sense that they were praying for the Lord to do the miraculous through them, and they didn't specify who should or shouldn't be operating in the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. So why not pray in a similar way for yourself and keep praying over this issue until the Lord starts using you in a greater way? He might use you to perform signs and wonders, but we must step out in faith to see Him do it. The Lord's response to this bold, faith-believing prayer is wonderful, and we find it in verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God boldly. The Savior was so pleased with that prayer that he gave the house a little shake to let them know that he was going to answer their prayer. Now, I wish that happened every time we prayed, for that would certainly help us know when we were praying correctly. Since this walk is by faith, we must by faith pray and believe that he will answer our prayers. Now, it's not just that the Lord gave a big, I like it by shaking the house, but he also filled them to overflowing with the Holy Spirit, which is even better. This wasn't a baptism in the Holy Spirit, for they had already received that on the day of Pentecost, at least most of them. This was the Lord giving them a fresh infilling. This is something we need on a regular basis, especially when believers are pouring themselves out for the salvation of the lost and discipleship of the saved. Such times of refreshing come through prayer, worship, and the preaching of the Word, and it's right for us to seek for those needed times of renewal. We now come to the final verses of chapter 4, and there is a certain amount of similarity to the end of chapter 2. The end of chapter 2 came out of the events of the day of Pentecost, while the end of chapter 4 came out of the church's first experience with persecution. What we saw at the end of chapter 2 was an overview of the life of the early church shortly after they received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. What we see at the end of chapter 4 is the life of the early church a short time after the day of Pentecost. There's not enough information to determine the length of time between chapters 2 and 4. My personal guess is that it was a matter of months rather than years. Then verse 32 states, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. This is similar to chapter 2, verses 44 and 45. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and good they gave to anyone as he had need. Since we recently studied this, I'm not going to go over it again. I don't believe that these two portions of Scripture are promoting a communal lifestyle of living, at least not as the normal condition of the church. What's obvious from both sections of Scripture is that there was great need, and this must have been the reason why they were sharing everything with each other. This may be the result of people becoming followers of Jesus and then being rejected by family and friends. With no place to go, they look to the church for help in their great time of need. As we continue reading through this chapter and on through the book of Acts, we will see that communal living wasn't the normal life of the church, but was merely the response to a given need. What we can see from both portions of Acts is the love they had for each other in that they were willing to sell their land and possessions as was necessary to help fellow believers. Then in verse 33, with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. Though this verse is concentrating on the supernatural power the apostles were operating through, it doesn't mean that others weren't being used in a similar way. Take the account of Philip as an example. He was one of the first deacons and was used to see revival and perform many miracles. The Lord does great things through those who believe. There are three points that stick out to me in this verse. The first is that the church was operating through the supernatural, miracle-working power of the Holy Spirit. The second is that the primary truth they preached was Christ's resurrection from the dead, because this proved he was both Messiah and divine. One reason why the message of our Lord's resurrection was so important was partially due to the events of Christ's crucifixion being so well-known in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. They preached on the resurrection instead of concentrating on His crucifixion, as we are prone to do today. We preach the cross because it exposes the horrors of our sin. They preach the resurrection because it reveals Messiah. In both cases, this was the message the people needed to hear to come to saving faith. The third point is that an abundance of grace was poured out upon those early saints so that they could build Christ's church. This was all new, so they had to learn how to put Jesus' teaching into practice in the world in which they lived. Verse 34 seems like it should follow verse 32, or that verse 33 should be moved to the end of the chapter. Verse 34 continues the thought of verse 33, stating, There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales. The point of this verse is that there were no needy people among the believers because they loved and cared for each other. Notice the point in verse 34 that from time to time, which proves that the people still owned land and houses and lived in them, but if the needs were great enough, they would sell some of their property to help the church. This is just one proof that the early church didn't live in communes, though a small portion might have. When they did sell some of their property, we are told in verse 35 that they put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. This is how they collected money to meet the needs of others, but that doesn't mean it's the only acceptable way. Some churches take their offerings this way. Others do it the way they did in the temple where they had an offering box. There isn't a right or wrong way of doing this unless those who are taking the offering are manipulating people or using the money for their own greedy gain. Then they will answer to God for committing such evil. What the apostles did was give the money to the needy. They didn't hoard it for their own selfish gain. Finally, verses 36 and 37 read, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This is the Barnabas that traveled for a time with Paul, who we will get to know a little later. When the need arose, Barnabas sold a field to help take care of the needy. It doesn't say that he sold everything and moved into a Christian commune, only that he sold one field so that he could help the poor believers. That Joseph was given the name Barnabas means that he was a compassionate, caring man that strove to encourage the people in the faith. This is something we should all be doing. Thank you for listening to The Radical Truth with your host, Glenn Meldrum. We at in His Presence Ministries, pray that this weekly podcast will be a blessing to you. Please tell others about it and subscribe yourself to this free podcast. Don't forget to visit our website at www.ihp. M-I-N-I-S-T-R-Y dot See you again next time, and may God richly bless you as you seek Him in spirit and in truth. Under thirst no more so come wash in the river Come drink your fill Let healing walk